Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast edition for Friday, August 13th, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you have a great weekend in store, one that will keep you safe and healthy. We're going to be talking a lot today about the spread of the Delta variant of COVID-19, the novel coronavirus here in New Mexico, as case numbers just continue to soar. Uh, almost 800 confirmed new cases uh, this today alone on Friday the 13th. Uh, no irony there intended as this nightmare situation continues for all of us. We don't know what all that will portend, but we know it also comes at a time when students headed back to the classroom, many of which you cannot be vaccinated, and all the science continues to show that the majority of hospitalizations around new cases are tied to the unvaccinated, and we want to hear more about that to kick things off. Uh, we listened in this week on an update from hospital administrators, uh, as well as testing officials here in New Mexico, and the tone was stark indeed pleas for vaccinations uh, and the behaviors we have all come to learn now uh, make us all safer masking and social distancing again this is about stopping the spread of the delta variant and the covid19 cases that is what everybody is after you're going to hear how the hospitals are already strapped it's not like a year ago when we had surges because they're trying to get caught up on all of the things they put off to try to help COVID patients in the past. And so we don't have a lot of availability there. In fact, Roswell is already sending their patients up to Albuquerque for COVID cases because of that very situation. Uh, so again, let's kick things off with our hospital administrators. And I think a point to really hone in on comes from the representative from UNH, UNMH hospitals talking about how bottom line is the longer we let this uh, any virus out there to spread, the more chance for it to mutate and lead to other variants. And we already know there are some other variants out there beyond the Delta variant. So uh, hear now a little more from those hospital officials. We have a very important message today to get out to the public. That message is that vaccines are safe, they're effective, and we can prevent an increased number of deaths from COVID-19. There is still time. People can still get vaccinated. I would encourage everybody that is not vaccinated to go out and talk with their primary care doctor or find a location that can give you the shot. Evidence shows that COVID-19 is now really a pandemic of the unvaccinated. In New Mexico, 93% of hospitalizations for COVID-19 are in the unvaccinated. In Presbyterian hospitals statewide, we're experiencing a doubling of cases every week. Every patient with COVID-19 that is in the hospital is taking up the spot of another patient with a cancer or a stroke or some other illness that needs care. At UNM Hospital, we are seeing increasing number of COVID-19 patients, and we have been catching up with deferred care, with trauma care, and with stroke care, and our hospital has been very full for several months. This time around, we are not starting at a place where we have a lot of capacity. 
but we are also starting at a place where we have a very effective weapon against this virus. I think it is important for people to, to realize that less than 0.01% of fully vaccinated people have been hospitalized this time around. Here at Tricor, we are seeing increasing positivity rate for um, COVID-19. We are also seeing increased number of tests being performed. Right now, it is critical that people who have symptoms are going to be tested um, so that we can prevent the spread of the virus within the community. Just want to reassure everyone that the tests that are performed at Tricor are able to effectively detect the Delta variant, and there is no cross-reactivity with other viruses that would cause any other false positive results. The tests that we are performing here are highly sensitive, they're highly specific, and they're our best way to know who um, may have the virus and our best way to know who needs to be isolated until they're no longer infectious to others. When we first started seeing patients 15 months ago, uh, there was a spread, but it tended to be people with underlying medical conditions just because it was harder for them to compensate for reacting to the infection itself. And so a little bit older, a little bit sicker with chronic conditions. And now what we're seeing is that it's the people who aren't getting vaccinated. And so that demographic tends to be younger people, not necessarily with medical problems, because maybe there's a sense that they're um, invincible and that uh, COVID won't get them because it didn't get them already. I think what this latest surge has shown us, that is, if you're not vaccinated, and if you allow the virus to spread, it will mutate. And if we continue to stay unvaccinated, we are faced with the possibility of an even more dangerous mutant in the future. So the longer we stay unvaccinated, the more opportunity we are giving the virus to mutate again. And we already know that there are other mutants on the horizon that we have started to study. And we'll pick that conversation up right there with some reaction response from our line opinion panel this week. It includes regulars, Serge Martinez of the UNM Law School and Diane Snyder, former state senator. We also welcome back Merritt Allen of Vox Optima PR. And they're reacting to those comments from those hospital officials. Uh, Again, school's back in session this week and what that is going to mean We've got uh, pleas, calls for businesses to start to enforce um, vaccine mandates. I don't know if we're headed towards new public health orders, uh, but we know that uh, cases are on the rise. Health and Human Services uh, Secretary David Scrace this week said we can expect 1,000 cases per day possibly by the end of this month. Definitely not headed in the right direction. We've got universities coming back soon. And so just a lot to dig into. So let's toss it right over to host Jean Grant and the line. This week's Line Opinion panel picks up the conversation from there. We appreciate all the time they put into each week researching the topics and sharing their insights. Back with us this week is line regular Serge Martinez. He's a professor in the UNM Law School. Also line regular and former state senator Diane Snyder, always glad to have you into our Zoom discussion. And we welcome back Merritt Allen of Vox Optima PR. Now, first, the vaccination pleas from those hospital officials was pretty stark this week, Merritt, but do you think 
their stories and statistics and everything they were saying is hitting home any more than earlier vaccination messages. Is this better? It must. Yeah. It must. It absolutely must. I hear you. Um, th this is vital. Um, the Albuquerque Journal reported this morning that patients from Roswell, COVID patients from Roswell, are now being transported to Albuquerque wow. because those hospitals, those beds are full. Oh um, th this is absolutely vital. Uh, we are seeing, again, uh, patients with other conditions that require hospitalization are having to wait in the ER for a bed to open up. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I am I'm sick at heart because people in my own party for cheap political. Uh, uh, basically, what they think is going to be cheap political capital and an easy win in a primary are going to actively support people not getting vaccinated. I want to be really clear. This vaccine is not going to be made mandatory by the governor or by the president. No vaccine has been. What private employers choose to do, what a state employer chooses to do is completely different. But any individual can choose not to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. What we are seeing in stark reports from these uh, from these doctors, what we are seeing nationwide, what we've just seen from Roswell having to see patients, if you are not vaccinated, you are at risk from the Delta variant. You are taking your life in your hands, and that is your choice. Mm -hmm. But when politicians and when political influencers decide for some sort of political stunt to get a crowd response, to get a donation, for whatever political reason that it's helpful or advantageous to support misinformation about the vaccine, I want you to take a good look at yourself and look at these hospital statistics and decide if it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Good points there. Good points. Uh, Serge, schools are, or Diane, let's go to you on this one. Schools are also now in session. Everyone's watching closely to see how this goes. No doubt about that. We've already seen a smattering of cases, Santa Fe reporting in, in part because younger students, of course, still aren't eligible for the vaccine. And at the same time, we're still seeing some pushback from some lawmakers and school officials to mask mandates and other restrictions. How do you think this plays out in the long play? I think that the long play is that it ends up being nothing but disastrous mm -hmm. for New Mexicans. Um, I I was listening and maybe it was on the previous presentation mm -hmm. uh, for us, but some or I read is they were talking about the similarities between tuberculosis and the 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 situation and the contagiousness and the vaccine and how many people. Oh, and also the distance, because uh, as you know, from our history that, that Taos in many areas, they developed tuberculosis centers mm -hmm. because it was the altitude was so much better for the patient. So we have a history that we can draw on here. The thing about it is most people, unless they had someone in their family, objected to it, having mm -hmm. a vaccine. Oh, and the, I was reading, and it's the same objections I've heard about the COVID vaccine is, oh, I don't know what's in there, don't know what it might do. You know, those are all the same things. And, and I wasn't old enough to remember tuberculosis, but I remember getting a smallpox shot. I still have my little scar sure. on my shoulder. And I look at it and I go, okay, folks, it's a natural reaction, I guess, to oppose it. 
and for but to get into the debate of whether it's my right as a parent to determine what is happening to my child, that is true. However, as as Meredith the Merritt said, is you're also assuming the responsibility. What the decision you make for your child right. is going to be a decision that impacts their classmates. Mm -hmm. So and their instructors. Uh, I think, and I think the biggest thing I am concerned about is I've read so many different opinions. I've looked at, I've listened to news and I listen to all of them to, to see, so I get a diverse opinion. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I think most of us don't really understand what's going on and who to believe. That's a what's point. really true That's a and point. what's not. That, so, goes, that goes that goes back to Barrett's point about disinformation and everything that's going on yeah. out there. Let me get let me swing Surgeon here. Surge, you know, the education department has put itself in the center of this storm, recommending yeah. some of those restrictions and actually suspending the Floyd School Board for bucking those guidelines. Let me just ask you straight up, would it be better at this point to just go back to a public health order from the governor? I mean, her authority has been, you know, upheld by repeated challenges during the pandemic. Should we just go there again? Uh, well, I don't know how effective that was, you know, when it was happening either. I was Fair you know, point. Traveled, mm -hmm. traveled in southern New Mexico uh, during the pendency of that order, and I didn't notice it making a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think, you know, folks who are going to choose not to do this are going to choose not to do this. And so the, you know, the source of the authority is, I think, it's probably stronger coming from the governor, mm -hmm. obviously. But, you know, folks who are brewing for a fight are going gonna to fight no matter what this is. And I think uh, it is just inevitable that this is going to keep coming to a head uh, as long as, you know, as um, my co-panelists have said, as long mm -hmm. as there's you know, disinformation and folks are stirring folks up for, for their own reasons, you know, it doesn't matter who the order comes from. There's going to be a lot of folks who choose not to listen to it or think it's a, you know, mm -hmm. a, a point worth fighting over. Yeah. Yep. Hey, Merritt, you know, I was interested in Dr. McKee from UNM, you know, when she pointed out the longer we let a virus spread around, the higher the chance for mutations. Isn't that convincing right there? I mean, is that not enough to punch through for people? And, and that's what's happened um, with uh, the Delta variant. Um, and uh, we're, we're seeing uh, the impact of it. So uh, I... I uh, certainly have been vaccinated. Everyone in my family's mm -hmm. uh, been vaccinated. Um, I think asking people to show that they've been vaccinated or ask them to then uh, take a precaution. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm well, from a military family. You know, California's gone there. Massachusetts has gone there. A lot of states have gone there. I, I, yeah. I don't know. When I went into first grade, I was switching from public to parochial school, and mm -hmm. I had a card that showed my sh shots on it. My Republican parents did not feel that this was um, uh, some sort of government uh, taking away their freedom. This was showing my kid is not going to infect other kids, so no precautions have to be taken. Mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. that's what that was. Can parents choose not to vaccinate their children? Yes. Um, I think that's appropriate. Um, I agree that a, a state mandate for school boards is probably not going to be received well, and parents will still not do it. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think that's uh, I think that's a hard case. But I think 
offering an easier way forward for parents who are willing to demonstrate my children are vaccinated, I am vaccinated. That's simply what a shock card is. That's what I had growing up. That's probably what everyone here had growing up mm-hmm. starting school is here's my vaccination record. That's right. It, it, it's not a big deal. It's not an invasion into privacy. It's not impinging on freedom. It's just simply making a process easier. Senator, we get less. We got about 30 seconds. Do you want to pick up on that? The idea of a vaccine passport, all that kind of thing? I, I think I agree with what Merritt said. Mm-hmm. It really is. Uh, and maybe it's we older people who have experienced these things. You took your little right. shot card That's right. to get into school. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a big deal. It was just part of the process. And I'm as much of a believer as anyone in the independence and, and, and having my own thoughts and values. But I have to cont- accept that I have the responsibility of others and making my decisions. That's right. And by the way, we still have to show immunization records to get into school. <laughs> it's just, it's still going on. I'll have to wrap it up there for now. You can watch that full status update with hospital administrators on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Still ahead on the line, we'll explore the latest round of musical chairs in the Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's administration. Continuing now with the line opinion panel, And uh, another big story from the news this week was the resignation of Children, Youth, and Families Department Secretary Brian Blaylock. That is a name you may have heard of in recent weeks and months. Uh, We have been closely following here the great work of Searchlight New Mexico, who originally shined a light on the fact that Secretary Blaylock had directed his department to conduct a lot of uh, public business on Signal, which is an app, an instant messaging app, where you can set it to delete um, messages after a certain amount of time. And of course, CYFD covers a lot of very personal issues, family situations, but it is conducting public business. And so that raised a lot of eyebrows. And then follow that up with a whistleblower lawsuit from two employees who say they raised the red flag around the use of that Signal app and then were Uh, removed from their positions not long afterwards, so they have filed their own whistleblower lawsuit. Um, And so this week we get the word from Brian Blaylock that he is stepping down at the end of this month. His statement said that he was going to um, support his wife in a new job opportunity in California, but he has been clouded in some scandal of late. We also got word that recently retired Supreme Court Justice Barbara V. Hill will take over in October that position. She led up the uh, state kids court uh, for years, so she has a lot of experience in this area. But uh, even before the situation with Brian Blaylock, those of you who have been here for a while know that CYFD has been an issue, a recurring issue for the state, a difficult department, no doubt. But uh, we wanted to ask the question, how do we get this ship righted and straightened out in the future. So a lot of great thoughts on that. And with that, back to Gene and the line panelists. The revolving door apparently keeps spinning in Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's cabinet. Recently, she announced new leadership in the education and public safety departments. Now comes word that Children, Youth and Family Secretary Brian Blaylock is stepping down this month. Mr. Blaylock, you might remember, has faced criticism for spearheading the use of temporary messaging service called Signal to conduct public business. 
Mr. Blaylock says he is leaving to follow his wife in a new career opportunity for her in California. But the bigger question here is, is this just normal turnover for high-stress jobs during a difficult time? Or, Senator, should we be worried there is something else going on here with all this turnover? Um, I would be a little concerned about the turnover, high tur what I consider high turnover, in the other departments. In CYFD, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, it has been a revolving door as long as I can remember. I, I started in the legislature in January 2001. Mm -hmm. It was an issue then. We went through... And this has been an issue regardless of which party was in the exact control of the executive. So I don't think we can say that it's any more. I don't, I'd have to go back and count all the numbers, but I don't think it's any higher than it was over the last few years. Mm -hmm. But I think we do have a right to be concerned about what CYFD is doing. I do think that and in leaving to support your spouse sounds a little strange to me, but then so does pursue other opportunities, which mm -hmm. we hear frequently. Mm -hmm. But um, Justice Barbara Vigil, the public may not know or may not have noticed in the article, was a former children's court judge. So she has a lot of, uh, for about 10 years or so, she has a lot of experience in dealing with children and their parents and their care mm -hmm. and having to make decisions about those. Mm -hmm. uh, I I have to tell you what I think should happen, and this is just me, with her in place, I think she's outstanding. And, and as an attorney and as a former judge, she reminds me much of the uh, Solomon kind of situation, is she fits that image to me. We should get an outside entity someplace in the United States to come in and evaluate this department. Mm. Now, we've had this department and that department, and please don't get me wrong, I think David Abbey and the LFC and his staff are excellent in doing evaluations. But I think we need someone that has no connections to New Mexico right. come in and do the evaluation. We've tried separating the entities. We've tried creating a new department. We've changed secretaries, as we've talked about. That's right. But I want to know what we really need. It's not really a bad idea. Yeah. It's not a bad idea. Uh, Merritt, the state now faces a whistleblower lawsuit from two former CYFD employees who claimed they were fired for bringing those concerns about signal to light, as uncovered by a Searchlight New Mexico in a series of reports, by the way. Uh, is a fresh start the best thing for CYFD, given that cloud of scandal? Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean... It, I like that. Um, yes, I mean... It's it's almost the it has to be blown up and started over. I feel like for any gubernatorial candidate at this point for 2022, you could ignore any other issue and say, I pledge I will make CYFD a functional, effective agency, and that could win the election. It could be a single issue. It could be a single issue campaign. Um, and I think to uh, Diane's point, um, one thing about uh, bringing uh, Justice uh, V. Hill in, you know, other state uh, child welfare agencies have had to go under federal receivership. Yep. And certainly Justice V. Hill would know how to make that transition and mm -hmm. administer that. And 
that that may be the only way forward uh, at, at this point that's, because that's it's a fascinating very idea. That's a fascinating idea, Mary. I had not heard that uh, proposed before. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think it's very clear that this administration sees CYFD as a liability uh, to not be managed effectively, but to be kept out of the news. Gotcha. gotcha. And this is damage control only. Mm -hmm. And until we have a governor who is really willing to make CYFD function for the welfare of uh, New Mexico families and children, um, Perhaps to uh, Diane's point, um, outside oversight is the only way forward. Mm -hmm. Professor, I got a question here. We also know who will be leading COFD. Uh, Senator mentioned in the short term will be interim, but the newly retired Supreme Court Justice Barbara Vigil will take the helm, as we just heard. Justice Vigil's experience in this area as a head of a former the state's children's court, as Merritt mentioned. Do you think she will be a good fit here? Because what Merritt's proposing is someone to come in and basically clean house. I mean, she's got a lot of experience, but is, is this the person to clean house, so to speak? Uh, I think, you know, Justice V. Hill is incredibly respected among the bar uh, and folks, you know, who have interacted with her you know, throughout her career. She has vast experience in not just being an attorney and being a judge, but in some of the administrative aspects of running the state, you know, the, the courts in the state of New Mexico, uh, serving as the chief justice. And she's, you know, she, there's not a hint of scandal about her. She is a, she's, you know, going to be a solid head of this agency. Um, you know, I think she's more than up to the task. I certainly don't envy her. Right. Task. Yeah. I mean, this is, well, probably the, one of the hardest jobs in any any uh, state government to to be in charge of CYFD, mm -hmm. right? As Merritt was saying, the governor wants us to stay out of the news. Well, that's what we all want because CYFD makes the news when things go catastrophically wrong. That's true, right? And yeah. so threading that, you know, finding that that line of of doing what the agency does of you know protecting children while also trying to respect the rights of parents uh, throughout the state of New Mexico. And, and also do it efficiently and effectively with you know, the budgetary and other administrative restraints. This is an unbelievably challenging task. Mm -hmm. I think Justice Vigil is, is you know, a fantastic choice for it, but like I said, I don't envy her, that's for sure. Merritt is at a $100 million budget at CYFD, 100 million. And they're asked to do a lot of things. I've got to wonder if they're being asked to do too many things. I, I, I think. <laughs> no, I didn't know. I, I didn't quite hear. I, I think that's certainly. Um, I, I think that's certainly fair. They're understaffed. Right. Uh, they have pay issues. Um, uh, I know in 2016, uh, starting salary for uh, a child advocate was $15 an hour, and that was for a degree a degreed child advocate. Wow. Um, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, they they have issues um, with uh, middle management. Um, being somewhat entrenched and risk averse, mm -hmm. um, so it, yeah, there, there, there's there's a tremendous issue. Um, Secretary Blaylock came in with a, a, a completely new approach, uh, which was um, keeping families together, um, and so that was a <clears throat> complete change of culture from what had previously been. I, I think you don't change a culture uh, with a completely new mindset right. uh, overnight. 
So um, that, 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 is, that is certainly true. We don't have enough foster uh, parents. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, often children go out of state and uh, the, the child advocates who have often have double the caseload that they're supposed to right. um, also, so they're supposed to visit every child in their dossier once a month. Also, sometimes they're supposed to travel out of state. That's right. So, um, change is hard. My, my not, old boss, people. My, my old boss, Heather Wilson, when she was head of CYFD under Gary Johnson, she had a heck of a time just trying to make an inch worth of change. It's a very difficult situation. That's all the time we have for that discussion. Up next, the looming threat of evictions and utility shutoffs. We will end our line discussions circling back around on COVID and what are the other impacts, not directly health-related, but we have been keeping a close track on evictions during the pandemic. And, of course, we have a state moratorium is still in place while the federal moratorium a bit up in the air right now, but that has not stopped evictions from happening. We also know that this week was the end of the moratorium on utility shutoffs for people who are behind on their bills. And so left us wondering, are we headed for a real financial crisis here in New Mexico for those who can least afford for those things to go away as the pandemic carries on? Great, as always, to have Serge with us with these conversations. He's done a ton of work in especially evictions. Uh, over at the UNM Law School. He knows a ton about this, so we're going to rely on him a lot for some uh, great insight on this uh, and also the fact that there is federal relief money out there, uh, and unfortunately we have spent just a fraction of what has been allocated to us, and if we don't spend more of it and a lot more of it soon, we'll end up losing a bunch of it. So a very complicated issue and one that we are continuing to track here at New Mexico in focus. So here again, the line opinion panel. Time to wrap things up for this week with our line opinion panel with a discussion about whether or not a major financial crisis is looming in New Mexico. The state's eviction moratorium is still in place, but as Searchlight New Mexico recently reported, that hasn't stopped some landlords from filing thousands of eviction notices during the pandemic. And this week marked the cutoff for a moratorium on utility shutoffs for New Mexicans behind on payments. There are relief programs out there, but Serge, as you know from your work in this area, it will not be enough. And I just have to ask you, how are these evictions even happening when there is a moratorium in place? Is this illegal? What, what's going on here? Uh, no, uh, there are a lot of evictions happening. Most of them are um, landlords who have figured out that the stay imposed by the New Mexico Supreme Court or the, the CDC moratorium only apply to a limited subset of evictions, and those are for non-payment of rent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at this point, a year and a half in, people have figured out there's lots of ways to, to remove tenants. And so because of the limited nature of the stay, right, what we're seeing is evictions happening even when we are you know, giving lip service to the the public policy goal of keeping people from moving around during during the pandemic and being dislocated from their homes. So it's it's not a loophole. It's functioning exactly as planned and anticipated and as many of us said would happen. And it is happening. Right. This is the stay is 
it, it's not the complete blanket protection that that a lot of folks like to think it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mary, is it too early to think about lifting these moratoriums? Uh, are we just putting off the inevitable without dealing, you know, with the underlying issues at stake here? Well, you know, I, I kind mm -hmm. of feel like um, there are so many programs in place that aren't talking to each other because uh, one thing um, I've been looking at is uh, renthelpnm.org, mm -hmm. which is a pretty good site. Um, as of August, and I'm reading the banner right now, as of August 12th, 2021, we have issued 10,237 awards totaling $26,797,000. This is um, a really good website um, that the state offers, um, offering uh, federal grants for people needing help with rent and utilities. And there's a whole site for landlords so that they can steer their tenants that way to get grants to get paid. So it also, you know, it's showing that the state understands landlords kind of need this too to keep landlords from going under. So there are some kind of robust programs in place to kind of keep this going because landlords can't go without rent forever either. Right. And particularly in Albuquerque where our, our housing market, uh, single home market is kind of skyrocketing, which is going to create a housing equality problem if we don't have one already. Um, I think it's I, I think it's a difficult program uh, to keep an eye on because we have federal cash flooding in. We've just gotten the infrastructure bill passed this week. Mm -hmm. Well, by the Senate, it's got to go to the House, uh, uh, get mm -hmm. through the House. Uh, the uncertainty of the pandemic continues, kind of pointing to um, our first segment uh, segment this week. So I think there's help out there. I don't I, I think to say it's too early. I, I don't uh, I can't agree with uh, that statement. At some point, we've got to attempt to go back to morale. Uh, Morality? Well, that's also a good idea, too. Well. Normality. <laughs> what a, that's a good spoonerism, Mary. Um, uh, uh, normality and morality. I, I'm for both. I love it. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm not ready to say it's too soon. We, I, I kind of feel like we've used, what, 27,000 of 170 million of federal aid. I kind of I, feel like I hear you. We, 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 spent, we spent just over 20 million out of the 284 million available. And uh, that money's going to go away, Senator, in the, at the end of September, unless we start spending a whole lot more. And Mert mentions, you know, we have a pretty decent website for people to get help. How do we get people to the website, first of all? That's, that's the biggest part, to take advantage of some of this money. Well, one quick obvious answer mm -hmm. is public service announcements. And maybe we get, this is something our media everywhere mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, t television to cable to uh, newspapers, whatever could run like a public service announcement. I think this is certainly something that's impacting all of the public, not just the renters. One of the uh, things, uh, comments and stuff that I read about is that some of the money that's been given out to the applicant, the renter, is not then getting to the owner of the facility, hmm. so and that it's being spent for other things. And I'm not saying this is a big problem or not a problem, but there is enough of that issue out in perception that our uh, owners are very concerned about whether the monies will get to them eventually. And you're right, there's 
I mean, that's a lot of money we're talking about, mm -hmm. and people should apply. Mm -hmm. All we can do is keep pounding on it. That's right. Uh, to do it, and then hope that it gets where it's supposed to go. Let me get Serge in here, of course. And Serge, a June report from the LFC. I, I have to say it again. If New Mexico does not spend a third of that $284 million by the end of September, we could lose millions in badly needed aid. A, a touch on this, if you would, everything you've heard here. What, what needs to happen next? Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing the same things. I talk about the emergency rental assistance money, you know, every day as much as I can to mm -hmm. whoever I'll talk to. And I am constantly surprised that people are surprised when I tell them that this money is available. Right. Uh, and when they do apply, the website, as Merritt said, is pretty good. It's pretty functional, um, easy to do. There's a there's a waiting period of a few weeks mm -hmm. um, that is that is slowing some of this down. Um, and there's also a spot for landlords to apply for this, for mm -hmm. landlords to say, right. my tenants. And, you know, we talk about people, pe individual tenants may not know about this money being available. Landlords know about this money. That's right. Right. Hey, sir, let me ask you something else here in the yeah. work you do. 91% of evicted renters in Albuquerque did not have legal representation. Mm -hmm. uh, the research shows. How do we how do we fix that? How do we get renters better representation in these situations? You know, I mean, there are places that have made it used, you know, uh, funds to pay for lawyers for everybody who's facing eviction. Mm -hmm. And they've seen outcomes that keep people from getting evicted. Mm -hmm. It's not, a, you know, the, the, the courts, the eviction courts are designed with the idea of being accessible to people who don't have lawyers. In practice, mm -hmm. it's, it's bewildering and, and overwhelming in a lot of cases. Um, but the places, there are two answers, I guess. One is more money for lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. But that's a bit self-serving. The other is reduce the number of folks who are facing eviction. Ah. And by, by encouraging, for example, right now, say, look, as a landlord, if you want to evict somebody for non-payment, first you need to talk to the ERAP people, the rent help people, and see if you can get that money. If there's a reason that you can't get paid, right, then we can talk about that. Um, slowing things down to allow folks to be able to try to get that money would significantly reduce the folks who are in court, which would reduce the number of folks who don't have access to lawyers. Mm -hmm. So it, you can come at it from either way. Um, but it's true. It's a real issue, right? As a lawyer, obviously, I believe everybody deserves to have uh, the benefit of someone who's trained in the law and who's That's not right. going to be That's overwhelmed right. by the court. That's right. And as you've made the point many times here, Professor, these folks are going out the door with an eviction on their record which makes right. their life very, very difficult down the road. So that's a wrap for this week's line panel. Thanks again for all your efforts. Be sure to keep up with the conversation with us this week on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you all have experienced some of the monsoon rains of late and some of the monsoon rains that are not of the extreme variety. We've seen a lot of flooding even as recently as yesterday in Las Cruces. I think a lot of us have seen a lot more rain from this year's monsoons than we were expecting, or a lot of folks were even predicting. And so that started to get us asking a lot of questions about what will that do to our ongoing drought? How do these monsoons uh, play out in relation to the snowpack that we also talk about every year in terms of our water supplies? And so with that, we set out for this month's episode of Our Land with correspondent Laura Paskus to get some answers to all of that. And she lined up a meteorologist researcher with NOAA and the National Weather Service 
Daniel Porter. He came in and uh, talked to us a lot about uh, these issues and um, also an important point, the difference between weather, which are the monsoons, and climate, which really ties to that snowpack and our long-term water supplies. So no surprise, you're going to hear lots here about how the monsoons are great and welcome, as long as they aren't of the severe flooding kind, but they really will do only a minimal amount to help with our ongoing drought here in New Mexico. All of this, of course, tied to climate change and a rising temperatures, uh, something we cover a great deal on our land and will continue to do so, but just wanted to bring you some of those insights and also some of the projections out for the next year or so in terms of our drought conditions. So here is Laura Paskus and this month's Our Land. Daniel Porter, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So when it comes to really um, alleviating drought, how much do the monsoons help versus how much does our snowpack help? And I think uh, for the winter season, that's what we're really looking for because we're looking in the higher elevations, we're looking for snowpack, snow accumulations that are piling up in the higher terrain. And then as you get into the spring months that eventually slowly melts and works its way through the reservoir system, through the streams and rivers and what have you. The challenge that you face during the monsoon season, while the precipitation is certainly welcome, um, a lot of times it can be spotty in nature. You have the haves and have nots and that can happen on a daily basis. But uh, sometimes, um, you know, you don't get enough precipitation during the, the monsoon season to, to help. Uh, the drought situation. So what you're looking for is uh, persistent light to moderate precipitation. You really get that during the uh, uh, winter season and it impacts a larger area of the state versus in the monsoon season, it can be pretty spotty uh, at times. And here in the Southwest, we, we're always paying attention to whether it's gonna be El Nino or La Nina. Can you sort of just give us the brief overview of what those two different systems mean for the Southwest and maybe what we're looking ahead to in the next few months, next six months? Oh, absolutely. So um, El Nino is, uh, and La Nina is we are focused on the central and eastern Pacific, the sea surface temperatures there. So a deviation in what we consider normal for that region. Right now we are uh, what we call inso neutral. So the temperatures in the central and eastern Pacific are near normal. And what that does is that it, uh, it, it changes the weather patterns across the, the northern hemisphere. And it's really a phenomenon that we really pay attention to during the winter and spring months because there's a direct, a little bit more of a direct correlation with wetter patterns across uh, the northern, uh, northern America. And with that being said, uh, there's not a direct correlation uh, for the next couple of months for the, the monsoon season. If you have an El Nino pattern going on in the Eastern Pacific, you do have better chances for tropical cyclones to develop because the waters are warmer across that area. And then if you get the right upper level pattern across the uh, desert southwest, that could tug some of that moisture northward into the desert southwest. So that it could be one small correlation we see with El Nino during the monsoon season. But across the winter and spring months, 
What we're looking for is El Nino across our region because that tugs the storm track further towards the south into the desert southwest. And as you have more storms move through the region, you have greater chances for precipitation. And so it tilts your odds a little bit more in favor of more of a near to above normal season. Um, what we are looking at right now for this upcoming 2021-2022 winter season is the numerical models have come into some sort of agreement that we might be faced with another round of La Nina conditions. And usually for New Mexico, the storm track's too far north and that reduces the opportunity for storms to move through the region. And so generally in that uh, pattern, we see below normal precipitation and above normal temperatures. That's not to say storms won't come through the region and they won't be impactful to New Mexico. We still get significant winter storms that move through the region during that time and we need to be prepared for those type of scenarios. But the frequency of those events are probably gonna be uh, fewer than when we're in neutral or El Nino. And just kind of an interesting stat that I kind of looked at uh, before uh, we came on the show here is uh, when we do the double dip into La Nina, so we had a La Nina, we've kind of come out of it, and it's now forecast to go back into La Nina. Those are historically terrible seasons for New Mexico. We are usually below normal in the precipitation department. So we kind of need to keep our fingers crossed that uh, the La Nina that is uh, forecast to occur in the coming months, uh, in the fall, in the winter season, isn't gonna be as severe uh, as in past. So right now, looking around the state, like the, uh, much of the state is in drought conditions. We're seeing our rivers low and drying, our reservoirs are low. So we should not be thinking like, oh, let's just keep our fingers crossed for a, a good snowpack and next year we'll be okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we really, it looks like we really need to hang our hat a little bit on this monsoon season and hope we get quite a bit of precipitation during the season and we can uh, capture some of that water that we're uh, receiving uh, during the next couple of months. But as we go into the winter and, and into the spring months, it looks like uh, we might uh, not see as much snowpack in the higher elevations and that will certainly uh, translate to a challenging spring for 2022 because uh, it could intensify the drought situation. The fuels across the region will continue to dry out and then once we get those westerlies that we're also familiar with in New Mexico when the winds really start to pick up and the humidities drop off and we've already got drought that's a recipe for um, extreme fire behavior, and uh, that would be something we'll be monitoring very closely next spring. So one of the things that we know about our changing climate is we'll continue to see a, a rise in temperatures. When it comes to precipitation, however, or um, the future of the monsoon season, what do we know about those changes into the future? Yeah, the North American monsoon is already a complicated and not fully well understood system that impacts uh, the Western United States. Now you add climate change into the equation where temperatures are warming, that kind of takes things out of balance a little bit. And so it becomes even more challenging to predict what future monsoon seasons across the desert southwest may be faced with. But as you have a warming climate, temperatures continue to warm, the droughts continue to become more severe, uh, the, air, uh, the uh, region becomes much more arid and what have you. 
There is some modeling out there uh, that suggests that as well as the temperatures warm, there's an opportunity for more water vapor to be available in the atmosphere. And so when you do get a storm that does impact your region, you get the right uh, weather pattern to set up across your region, it could be more intense in nature because there's more water vapor available for storms to work with in the atmosphere. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword a little bit. You have the uh, severe droughts that do develop, but then when um, you do have storm systems move through, they could be uh, heavy rainfall producers. And so you're faced with drought and then you're also faced with the flash flood risks that come with uh, those heavy thunderstorms. So speaking of that, uh, um, you know, these, uh, these um, storms that we saw like in Doña Ana County or that caused flooding in Berlin or Carlsbad, are these considered extreme weather events or kind of how do they fit into that narrative? So, you know, for the monsoon season, we always face the risk for flash flooding. Um, and it, it's uh, always amplified as well when you have wildfire burn scars, urban development, and what have you. And so those, those challenges have always been there and they will continue to be an issue going forward. Uh, whether or not we can pinpoint specific events as to whether or not it's related to climate change is very difficult to ascertain. But I would say that the risk for those heavy rainfall events moving forward, the, the frequency of those are most likely going to increase as we continue to have a warming climate. So one of the things that we've talked about on this show before is, is how um, our, our warming climate kind of sets us up to, to not always have a sense of normal, that there can be dry periods, there can be very wet periods. It's, can be very unpredictable. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of how we can anticipate what our, our weather patterns will be like as we have a changing climate. That's a, a, an interesting question and one that many of us may not necessarily know the answers to because uh, we, we are looking at numerical models now and we see the patterns that we anticipate for the upcoming season, but then maybe they don't pan out. Is it because of the poor model performance or is it because of a changing climate across the region? And so it's always, it seems like it's a bit of a moving target a little bit because we're facing something that we've not faced with before uh, in, in the most recent years, decades, and, and centuries. So, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me here. And we all know you can never have enough Laura Paskus in your life. We are so thrilled to be working with her on our land and environmental reporting here at New Mexico in Focus. We had to tap her this week as well on Facebook Live with Jean Grant to talk about the big news of the week, the IPCC climate change report. It's their sixth report. And man, was it dire. I hope you've had a chance to see some of it. Uh, the basic messages are the same about the impacts of climate change. The real difference, as you hear Laura talk about, is the tone, the urgency. And uh, we know that there are a lot of things in the works, but we've really got to get serious about this if we're going to be able to mitigate the effects of climate change. And so we wanted to pick her brain a little bit about some of those local impacts that we touched on in our land, as well as some of the other impacts and uh, as well as how we can 
not only uh, help steel ourselves to not feel overwhelmed and that there's no use in trying, but also some very simple things we can all be doing to sort of refocus ourselves on taking care of this beautiful place we call home. So here again, Laura Paskus with Gene Grant. Hey, Kevin. Hey, folks. Glad to have you. It's Wednesday noon. It's time for another Facebook Live brought to you by New Mexico In Focus and New Mexico PBS. Appreciate you spending some time with us. If you're watching this after the noon hour on Wednesday, thank you for joining us as well. <laughs> Appreciate it. You see Laura Paskus there. If you watch our show, you're familiar with her face and her wonderful environmental work she's been doing with us regarding, of course, PFAS on our military installments around the state. But she does a lot more than that, certainly, as you know as a watcher, and we've got some things to talk about today. Uh, this Friday night, Laura is going to be talking about monsoon and how it's been affected by climate change here in our state, what, how we're dealing with it, as well as we're going to discuss, of course, what came out on Monday, which is the new IPCC report on climate change. It was, it's been heralded all week as something we all need to pay attention to starting now. <laughs> so I want to bel- welcome Laura. Thank you. I want to, oh, oh, before I forget, she is also an author. I am so sorry. The name of the book is At the Precipice, Mexico's Changing Climate. And I'm very pleased to bring Laura Paskus to our Facebook Live. Laura, how are you? Good to see you. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jean. It's really nice to be talking to you today. Absolutely. It's good stuff. Let's talk about monsoon. It's on everyone's minds. We got a lot of moisture coming down, seemingly out of nowhere. If you've moved here in the last 10 years, you might not know what this is about. But drought followed by heavy water. There's something going on here with a pattern here. What, what's happening? Why is it so hot and then so wet? Yeah, that's a great question. So on Friday night, we're gonna have Daniel Porter from the National Weather Service here in Albuquerque on the show. Mm-hmm. And he talks, um, he talks with me about our current monsoon season um, in lots of places around the state. Um, a few weeks ago, we saw like major flooding in places like Donia Anna County and Carlsbad. And that's really a part of a pattern that we're seeing globally, which is an intensification of our water cycle. Mm-hmm. And so at the same time that we have things like the Rio Grande going dry and super hot days, we can also have these very localized storms mm-hmm. that dump a ton of water in one place. And that can help Um, If there's sustained rains over a period of time, that can help alleviate drought conditions in some ways, Mm -hmm. but it also contributes to flooding, problems with infrastructure, um, and a lot of that just sort of whooshes and runs off. Um, You hope that it collects in the reservoirs, but um, yeah, it's it's a part of this this experiment we're seeing across our planet, really. Right. You know, one of the terms that's sort of out there, maybe not fully in the public's uh, purview, but I know a lot of scientists are using uh, the idea of a compound extreme event, meaning it's not just one thing, but things because of the cycle we're in, I think that's what you're saying here, we can expect more to happen, even if it's just rain or just heat. Am I on the correct path there? Yeah, that's such a great point. And so this is something that we see here in the state and is also emphasized in the IPCC report you mentioned that came out on Monday. And so what that really means is like just to give some examples of things that we see here in New Mexico and we'll see more and more is um, drought, which is a lack of precipitation on top of rising temperatures. So that increases aridification. But you also have things like a longer growing season, 
on top of less water supply um, or more extreme weather events, those early freezes, those wind events that knock your orchard trees down, um, flooding that ruins your chili crop. Um, also things like drought plus wind, drying out your soils, causing dust storms, driving wildfires. Um, and then things like you have a forest fire in your watershed and that denudes the landscape and affects the whole watershed downstream. So it's not just rising temperatures or just drought, it's all these things that interact with one another. Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, when you go through that list, I'm also hearing dollar signs. <laughs> We're seeing dollar signs. This costs money to manage, it would seem to me. If you're a farmer, if you're growing anything, you've got to change your whole game now. Is that something you guys are going to be talking about on Friday night as well, how uh, folks are responding to uh, climate change? Yeah, we're not talking about that specifically on Friday night, but we do have some shows coming up later in the summer and into the fall looking at how climate change, whether it's um, water insecurity um, or these extreme weather events, how these are happening and compounding and affecting food supplies in the short term and the long term right. um, in terms of like not just the prices you pay, but what's actually going to be available in supermarkets and how farmers can make a living. Um, you know, it's already a tough business where people rely very heavily on federal subsidies in particular to even survive. So what is, you know, what does our food supply look like in a climate changed world? Mm -hmm. For folks who may not know, how close are we to dead center here in New Mexico for the idea of drought coming in the next you know, 10 to 20 years? Are, are we vulnerable here in New Mexico? So that's such a great question. One of the things when I was looking through the IPCC report yesterday, kind of like looking, obviously, you know, this looks at the entire globe. Um, and impacts across the entire planet. But the Southwestern United States makes quite a few specific appearances, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty uh, disheartening. But so one of the things that really jumped out at me is, you know, these reports look at sort of models into the future. What will happen with temperature rises if we emit fewer greenhouse gases, if we continue on the track we're on, if we, continue, if we emit even more and lays out these different scenarios. And so in the IPCC report that came out on Monday, it says even under a low emission scenario, the likelihood of extreme drought increases by 100%. Um, and it lists a number of places and Southwestern North America is the first place on that list. Wow. So, even if we do a great job cutting our emissions, we're still facing um, these really extreme drought conditions into the future. Absolutely, we might as well uh, get right to it. The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we hear us refer to them as the IPCC, of course. And on Monday, as Laura mentioned, they published their, I, you know, I don't know how else to say it, their clearest picture yet on the updated science of uh, planetary heating. I mean, it really, in case nobody knows, it's nearly 4,000 pages. It's pretty long. I haven't gotten through it personally. I'm, I'm still getting there. <laughs> uh, authored by 234 scientists from 66 nations, over 500 other scientists contributed to that report and emphasizes that climate change is widespread and, as Laura just said, intensifying. And that's the part, Laura, that really kind of blew me away here, that even if we did 
everything we could right now, we're still going to have a lot of rising happening over the next 30 years or so. How, how, how do, in your view, how does this increase the, the, the will to make change knowing this now? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've known about climate change for a long time. Yeah. And we've known even these IPCC reports have been coming out since 1990. And, and they've, they've said the same thing just with increasing urgency and increasing certainty over the past three decades. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yet as a, as a society, particularly industrialized nations like the United States, we have not committed, even with the best available science in front of us, We've not committed to cutting our greenhouse gas emissions in any serious ways. And I think, you know, it's, I think it is hard for people to think um, when a big report like this comes out and it makes headlines for a couple of days, people think, holy smokes, we are so in so much trouble. What's the point of even trying if, like you, you noted, the impacts are going to continue, even if we stopped emitting Right. greenhouse gases today but i think i think it's it's easy to get caught up in the sort of hopelessness and despair but we have the knowledge that we need we have the tools we need mm -hmm. it's just making sure that we are ready and able to commit to future generations because right now we do have the tools to to stave off the worst of the impacts that reports like this mm -hmm. portray. Um, every day that we wait, every year, every generation that we pass this on to, they have less and less time and fewer and fewer tools and opportunities. So I think that we should really take this moment as like this really exciting moment to say like enough, like we're done messing around as a species. <laughs> Right. We're going to tackle this. <laughs> I got a question for you um, from our Facebook uh, thread. Appreciate it. From Colton uh, asks, how can New Mexico, a landlocked high desert, prepare for climate change? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest things we need to be doing as a state is water planning. Right. And there are there are plans and discussions and programs underway. As far as I understand it, they are woefully underfunded by the legislature. Um, if you look at um, various um, initiatives in the state that, that we commit to funding, water planning is, has not traditionally been one of them. Um, so water planning and water planning under the, the umbrella of we, we already know that we're gonna have less water in our system. We're gonna have this intensified hydrological um, system. We know, we know what's coming. So let's be planning given those constraints and those realities. So that's a big one. Um, New Mexico really needs to grapple with the fact that we are an oil and gas producing state. We are directly responsible for the changing of the climate that we are experiencing so intensely already. So we really need as a state to come to terms with, do we value our agriculture and the future of our, of our landscapes and communities and rivers, or do we value oil and gas extraction 
because those things are at odds with one another. And um, it's a tricky, complicated issue, and I am confident that we can find solutions. Um, so those are really two of the big things. Um, you know, then there's there's kinds of all sorts of community pieces to that too. If you live in a place where you're vulnerable to wildfire, making sure your community is firewise. Um, you know, being cautious and careful about where we build, ensuring that our um, our buildings moving forward are energy efficient and also able to um, keep families and people safe during extreme heat events. Mm -hmm. So there's so much that we can be doing. I'm interested in, in listening to you say this because when I think about, or if I try to put myself in the place of people in, in municipalities, city government, you know, county government, you've got to start planning for a much different, you know, sort of scene outside where at your bus stops, yeah. you know, how long people walk to certain things. I mean, there's a lot of impact with heat when it comes to elderly people, our, 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 our ages, our average age is creeping up here in New Mexico. We have a lot, we have a lot to think about when it comes to managing heat and how we, we do our day-to-day -day lives. What, what's your sense of how you're hearing governments respond to this so far? Yeah, so I, I spoke with someone in the sustainability office at in Las Cruces, and this was a few years ago now, mm -hmm. but had like a fascinating conversation with her about, about the issues that they're looking at and planning for and facing. And, you know, these things are all tied in with like zoning and planning and kind of the day-to-day -day government issues. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about, you know, if you're looking at, um, you know, a five degree increase in hot days, that's the difference between 103 and 108 in nice. places in Southern New Mexico or even more. So, you know, people can't, we can't, it's not safe for people to be living in say cinder block construction homes with evaporative coolers because above a certain temperature, swamp coolers just don't cool you off. Um, and so what are we doing to ensure people are safe? And you bring up a really great point about bus stops um, and people who have to walk to work or bike to work. Um, you know, we really have to be taking care of one another and using all the tools that we have from, from local laws and regulations and planning and zoning all the way up to the federal level. Mm -hmm. I, I, I got to ask you as an author, you, obviously you lean into this. I would encourage folks to go to the UNM Press website to get a hold of Laura's book, by the way. Um, do you have any recommendations for folks who are now saying, you know what, I need to learn a bit more about this? Something, I, I, I'm, I'm behind. Do you have any publications you can re recommend or books you can recommend to folks out there to get them caught up on all this? Yeah, gosh, there's so many great books out right now. You know, one that I really love that Bill DeBuise wrote a few years ago is called The Great Aridness that focuses on the Southwest. Um, John Fleck has written a couple of books about the Colorado River specifically, but um, Elizabeth Colbert has a new book out about climate change and her older book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, is, is amazing. Um, there's a number, Michael Mann has a book out right now that is focused on the, you know, kind of why the climate is changing, how the climate is changing, but also how, um, you know, big business and corporations have, have helped us feel despairing about right. this. 
Um, and I would be happy to kind of like write up a little list for people and we can post that on Facebook or wherever it would be useful because there's so many great books out there right now that look at climate change from all different kinds of angles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. That'd be a great list. You know, the reason I ask you that, and I know you know this, so I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but this is an age of cynicism. And I get frustrated. I'm sure you get terribly frustrated with the idea that folks try to tell people that even a one degree Celsius change has enormous ramifications for the planet, for wildlife, for plants, for how we farm, how we eat, uh, how we fuel our vehicles, everything, it, let alone 2.7, which is some of the predictions coming, which would have enormous consequences for our oceans, our rivers, our lakes. I mean, no part of the world's going to be untouched by this. Uh, and we were joking off, not joking, we're saying off here just before we went on, I checked some of the foreign uh, TV news just before we went on, it was all about fires. Every story was about a fire. Greek, Greece is having a hard time right now. It's just really a pall of smoke over a lot of European countries right now. And it's really kind of a difficulty. How do we punch through this cynicism, this age of cynicism to say, folks, you have a, you have a hand in this. You can either make it worse by your own actions or you can make it better by your own actions as well. What's it gonna take, do you think, to flip people here? Yeah, some people are probably really sick of me hearing, hearing me say this, but I believe that this is true. It is a matter of connecting enjoy and love with our landscapes our rivers and our communities love it for you know for like for example it's a really hard to see our rio grande dry in the summer and be as low as it is even through albuquerque right now and and i can look at that river and cry and i do sometimes and i cry and i feel so hopeless and angry and frustrated and and like a failure or I can go out there and go for a run or a walk or wading in the river and I can see what birds are there and I can bring people I love to that place and share that place. And I think by connecting with our places and here in New Mexico, we have the best places. We connect and love and joy with these places. We will protect them. We will see how they're changing and we have a, a personal stake and protecting them. And when we, you know, a number of people have talked about how one of the most important things in terms of adaptation to climate change is community. And if mm. you have a close community, if you are a community of people who care about one another, you'll take care of one another. And so I know that's like kind of a cheesy answer, but it's honestly, it's the one that gets me through every day of feeling like this is big. And what part can I play? I can connect and I can love and I can think about how to face these challenges. Good points there. And I gotta, I gotta imagine the, the easier push might be, I'm, not, I'm guessing here, but might be with children versus cynical adults. <laughs> we don't oh, wanna yeah. hear anything. Is that part of the plan here? No, not the plan, it's not a good way to put it. Is, is part of the education is to educate young kids to get them to care about the planet, maybe just a little bit more than their parents did. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, young people today, they understand the climate is changing. They understand why. They understand what's going to happen. They understand that adults are failing them. Right. And they're in many ways angry. And they're also, many of the youth activists I meet are like, all right, 
yeah, we're taking charge. We, you guys, you guys haven't, you guys haven't had the strength or the perseverance to tackle this. So we'll, you know, you left us with fewer tools and less time, but That's we'll right. take care of this. <laughs> <laughs> I got a, a point from um, the, the thread, comment thread, appreciate it. It's from Leah, thank you, Leah. She makes an interesting point here. Uh, Leah says, grow hemp to fight climate change and that the tarpine pinon blocks up rays. That's an interesting point there. Hemp is the thing right now, isn't it? I, I mean, getting farmers to adopt low water use crops, how hard has that been? And, and do we have a better chance going forward? Yeah, so one, I would put a plug in for the Growing Forward podcast. Yay. <laughs> and like, you know, they're tackling that podcast um, here at KNME in collaboration with New Mexico Political Report and KUNM, really looking at these issues um, and recreational cannabis and hemp and, and the sorts of challenges and changes. So there's that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, anytime we talk about making agricultural changes, it can be tricky. It's like, um, you know, there's there's technological changes, there's cultural adaptations, there's investments, but there are also sometimes we mess up. And I'm not saying this with hemp because I don't know not enough about it, but sometimes we encourage changes and we don't know what, there are unintended consequences. And just as an example, you know, years ago, there was this move in the, the lower Rio Grande in New Mexico around Doña Ana County and the Elephant Butte Irrigation District to move farmers away from low income crops like alfalfa, for instance, and to move transition toward pecans and orchards. And what happened was they kind of, uh, you can fallow your alfalfa field in a bad year and not lose your entire farm right. if you can't fallow your orchards right. so you know it's these these sorts of these sorts of changes require a lot of um a lot of effort and thought and and i hope that hemp is a positive uh change for new mexico's farmers but i'm not uh up to date on, on that issue in particular. We'll leave that for the folks that down at New Mexico State. They, they're yeah. all over that. They, they get the hemp thing down on lock. So <laughs> I love it. Laura, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. This is, you know, this week especially, it really lined up. You know, we get a lot of great feedback whenever you're doing something on the show and Friday. And of course, I want folks to tune in to see that interview Laura talked about earlier that she's gonna have, but then also do yourself a favor and backstop your knowledge with the IPCC report. The links are everywhere out there. It's not hard to find. There are basically like everything else, an executive summary. There's, there's ways to get into specifics about the Southwest. So you don't have to slog through 4,000 pages if you don't want to, but at the same time, the stuff about the Southwest is shocking. <laughs> so, you know, maybe this is one of those moments we want to walk into it, Laura. We want to be shocked maybe a little bit in a, in a credible way and, and sort of get us into another frame of mind. I, I mean, this is my hope anyway from this report, you know. Yeah. And, you know, people, as you understand it and read through it, make sure that your legislators and your local officials 
also understand it. These, yeah. these reports are exciting when they come out and they drop out of the news almost immediately. So let's not let that happen here in New Mexico. Bless your heart for saying that. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, folks, Friday night, 7 o'clock, Channel 5.1. You'll see my colleague, Laura Paskus, do her thing, as well as myself in a, with a good group at the round table, virtually, of course, uh, at 7 o'clock as well. So thank you again, Laura Paskus. Really appreciate it. And folks, thank you for joining us again. If you're not here for the original noon hour, do it next week. We try to do it every week at Wednesday. Sometimes we're an hour off here or there, depending on schedule, but you can rely on us to be around midweek. Thanks again, guys. Have a great day. Stay cool. Thanks, Gene. See you Friday night. Alrighty, that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus. Again, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald. We always love to hear from you about any of the things we bring to you on this podcast. We would also love suggestions on future topics as well. So you can always leave us a message here or reach out to us on any of our social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. You can find us all of those places just by searching for New Mexico in Focus. We are working on a lot of great things to bring for you in the coming week. We encourage you to to check us out um, and see what we've got cooking. And of course, go back and listen to any of our past episodes. But we hope you have a terrific weekend. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy.